Okay, we are we had just finished up first Samuel chapter five the last time. And we had talked about how the Philistines had taken the ark in battle and then the bubonic plague broke out and it went from one city of theirs after to another wherever the ark was. And we had used that in relation uh, the last time was in relation to talking about Israel and God's foreign policy concerning Israel. God's foreign policy to the Gentiles concerning Israel. And now we'll pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Now the ark of the Lord had been in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for, for the priests and the diviners saying... What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we shall send it to its place. They said, if you send it, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but you shall surely return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then they said, what shall be the guilt offering which we which we shall return to him. And they said, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for one plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you shall make likenesses of your tumors and likenesses of your mice that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will ease his hand from you, your gods and your land. Why then... Do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he had severely dealt with them? Did they not allow the people to go and they departed? Now, therefore, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never been a yoke and hitch the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them. Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart And put the articles of gold which you returned to him as a guilt offering in a box by its side. Then send it away that it may go. Watch if it goes up by the way of its own territory to Beth Shemesh. Then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we know that it was not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. Then the men did so and took the two milk cows and hitched them to the cart, shut up their calves at home, put... They put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the likenesses of their tumors. And the cows took the straight way in the direction of Beth Shemesh. They went along the highway, lowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And the lords of the Philistines followed them to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark and were glad to see it. The ark came into the valley of Joshua, the Beth Shemite, and stood there where there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the ark and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. Okay, so... There was this ravaging of the land, and remember we had discussed this previously, the bubonic plague is is spread by rodents, by rats, by mice, 
and also it creates tumors, particularly in the hemorrhoids. And it's a painful and severe death. And so they, they, the lords of the Philistines said, what are we going to do? And we now know that the ark was with the Philistines for about seven months. The ark was with the Philistines because we, we know it was the, the time of the wheat harvest and it had said that previously. And, it, and so um, in that time, several of their cities were ravaged wherever the ark of the Lord had gone. Anytime they put it in the temple with Dagon, their god, Dagon would fall over or be broken or be cut up. God wouldn't, would just destroy their god at night. And so they called together, the, the, uh, it says in verse 2 of chapter 6, the priests and the diviners. And the priests would, would minister in their, in their temples. The diviners were the ones that would discern the, the will of their gods for them. And uh, it, it, it even, uh, there is a mention of the diviners of the Philistines in Isaiah chapter 2 verse 6. But, but this is what the diviners did. They would, they would try to find out what the will of their god was. And they said, what you can do is you can send the ark back. You can take the ark, put it on a, on a cart that's never been used, take two milk cows, cows that were not used for hauling, hook them to this, lock up their sheep, their, their, their calves at home, and then let them go. Now, milk cows won't generally leave their calves. But they said, if it goes to Beth Shemesh. Now, why Beth Shemesh of all places? Well, Beth Shemesh was one of the Levitical cities. So remember, there were cities that were set aside for the Levites. And in Joshua chapter 21, verse 13 through 16, Joshua 21, 13 through 16, when they were dividing up the land, God had set aside certain cities. And these diviners and priests knew that Beth Shemesh was the nearest Levitical city. And in that city, there would be Levites who are equipped to take care of the Ark of the Lord, because none of the other Israelites were allowed to touch or carry or deal with that Ark. And you say, well, how did the Philistines know that Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city? Because they lived right next to each other, continuously for hundreds of years, and so they knew each other. If you go to Israel today, and you look at Palestinians, and you look at Israelis, they live intermingled, even though they might not relate you know, as families, as friends, but they know a lot about each other. In fact, when, when we were taking a tour once throughout, throughout uh, parts of Israel, the tour guide said, tour guide said oh, that city, that, that's, uh, um, that's a Palestinian city, that town, that, that town is Palestinian, that town is Israeli, that town is Palestinian. And he says, this is the way you can tell. And, and uh, uh, so... To give you one of the features, he said, so for example, the Palestinian homes will always have a black uh, water tank built on top of the house, and the water warms up in there and then comes into the house. You don't see that on Jewish, town, Jewish towns on top of their homes. Palestinian towns, you will see the homes will, will rise up higher and higher as more families, as the children grow up and they get wise and start having kids, they'll build another floor on top of that, and then another floor on top of that. So they know about each other, even though they don't relate to each other a whole lot, they know about what town has this characteristic, and that is what was known in this day. So they said, we know, we will know that this outbreak against you was from the Lord if this happens, if this ark is carried by these milk cows, which wouldn't normally carry this ark, 
And it says that they just went directly to Beth Shemesh, directly, lowing as they went. They didn't stop. They weren't used to towing anything. You weren't used to, to pulling any carts. So you would think that they would stop and start eating or turn back around to their calves. They didn't. And it went directly to Beth Shemesh. And it said the five lords of the Philistines followed this, this, this cart. And then they knew that indeed this outbreak had been from the Lord. So that had been confirmed to them. And, and uh, uh, so we see that this, this very pattern. So now that we see the context and what was going on, I want to go back and look at this verse 6 and then expand upon this. Because what I like to do is, is to take and say, okay, what was happening in that time? What does this mean? And then say, you know, what lessons can we glean from this? <clears throat> so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When he severely dealt with them, did they not allow the people to go and they departed? So here the priests and the diviners are instructing the lords of the Philistines saying, haven't you been ravaged enough? Three of your cities have been ravaged by this plague. How much more does it have to affect you before you'll start paying attention? And they said, think about what happened with this nation, with Israel, and the Egyptians, and Pharaoh. When Pharaoh had hardened his heart and not let the Moses go and take the people. It says, when he severely dealt with him, meaning when God had severely dealt with Pharaoh... Did he not <clears throat> finally let them go? And the answer is yes, he finally let them go. So the, <clears throat> the, the uh, diviners are saying, how far do you have to go? How severely do you have to be dealt with before you'll yield to God, to this God of Israel? How far are you going to let us be ravaged before you begin to deal with this? He says, in the end, Pharaoh didn't win. God won. He severely dealt with them. And didn't he let them go? In the end, in the end, Pharaoh did not win. God won. And that's a lesson for us. That we can harden our hearts and just dig in our heels. But in the end, God is going to win. God wins. I want to look a little bit at this and expand upon this. Let me give you an example of some things that can sort of take on lives of their own within our own lives. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you turn there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it speaks very specifically about lawsuits. And there's an instruction to believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 instructing about lawsuits, how lawsuits are discouraged. It says believers should never file lawsuits against believers. It just shouldn't be done. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses uh, uh, 1 through 8. So it says, it says uh, um, in verse 7 of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? And so what happens is somebody will do something to us and we feel, well, we have to sue them to get them back. And 
the instruction is, you've already lost then. You've already lost. Now, this is specifically an instruction from believers with other believers that there should not be lawsuits. But the practice of learning to forgive is a much better practice. And I can tell you, from personal experience serving on the boards of companies, how when a a company decides to sue, that this lawsuit can take on a life of its own and starts consuming huge resources from the company. And the only people that generally win in the end are the attorneys. And, you know, these lawsuits just get strung out year after year after year. And nobody wins except the attorneys. They take on a life of their own. So remember this. Avoid lawsuits at all costs. Now, after I've been through this, you know, a decade ago, being on boards, now anytime on the board of a company, I say, there is no way, no way we're going to have a lawsuit. No way. They say, well, you know, this person's taking this, this person's taking that. I said, it is much cheaper than what you're about to embark upon. Just to let this thing go. Just let it go. Or else you get a huge amount of resources. Now, people have come to me, and, and, and understandably, they're construction workers and things, when people don't pay, and, and, and this is not a believer-unbeliever sort of thing, and, and this is just a way of life in some, some companies. I understand that, and I appreciate that. But I'm speaking as us as individuals, and also you as you begin to move up in the corporate world. Try to refrain from lawsuits. It's very quick that people will get involved in these things. They take on a life of their own. In the end, in the end, most people lose on this, except the attorneys. There are things in our personal lives that we will sometimes hold on to. And again, those take on a life of their own and as we hold on to this. And it's just like this instruction that these priests were saying to their leaders, how far do you have to go before you let this thing go. God is in the end going to win on this. And, and let, let me have you turn to Daniel. Daniel chapter 9. Now if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel was an amazing guy. You will find no fault in Daniel. In his whole life, you will find no fault. And the scriptures are not... So, so this, this is just after uh, Ezekiel, which is just after Jeremiah. So if you can find Jeremiah, then you'll find Ezekiel, and then you'll find Daniel. And Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel was part, of the, lead, part of, of the young people among the leaders of Judea when King Nebuchadnezzar came down and destroyed the, the, the uh, temple, the first destruction of the temple, in somewhere around 650 B.C., And uh, Daniel was a young man, probably around the age of 15 or 16, somewhere in there. Then they were in captivity for 70 years. There was a 70-year captivity. That made Daniel now in his mid-80s by Daniel chapter 9. There are many people that tried to find fault with Daniel, and it was said that nobody could find fault with Daniel. Nobody had an accusation against him. Now, not that he never sinned, but the Bible is not coy about pointing out people's sins. But if you read the book of Daniel, he was really a good guy, very devoted, very honoring of God. But now, in Daniel chapter 9, he's in his mid-80s. He has served under Nebuchadnezzar, got lifted up to serve alongside Nebuchadnezzar in his kingdom. Coming from a slave, he was lifted up. 
Then he was taken in. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was attacked by the kingdom of Cyrus and Darius from Persia. And he was moved on over to the other side of the Euphrates. Moved on over into Persia and ended up serving those kings as well. So he served through a period of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, then these kings of Persia. So he reigned with many other kings. Didn't reign, but he, he worked in their administrations because of his extreme talent. Now he's a very old man. No sin in his own life, but now look what he does. Look at the way he begins to take upon himself the sins of this nation in asking God to forgive the nation. So Daniel chapter 9, reading from verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the book of Numbers, uh, Charles, yeah, not milk, water would be good. Thank you who was made king over the kingdom of Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books of the numbers of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So here Daniel starts reading, Daniel starts reading in the prophet, the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah had written that 70 years will be your captivity. And so now, all of a sudden, Daniel realizes that 70 years have transpired, that there's now been 70 years. So it's about time that that they're going to be restored now to go back to Jerusalem. He says in verse 3, So I gave attention to the Lord God to seek Him, by prayer and supplication and fasting, sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and Your ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice, so the curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his word which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done in Jerusalem. And 
As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept this calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. So you see, here is a guy, Daniel, who in so many respects was so righteous And he took upon himself these sins of the nation. He took upon himself, he says, we have sinned. We have done this. He didn't just dig in his heels. Remember, this is a guy in his mid-80s. Look what this guy in his mid-80s is doing. He realizes the time is here. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. In his mid-80s. As people get older, they very often say, well, I can't fast anymore. You know, I, I could do it when I was young. You know, all sorts of things come in. And then young people give excuses, well, I'm too young, you know, I'll, I'll do it when I'm older. And then they never fast. So, so um, look what he does. He takes upon himself fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, and he realizes the time is near for the completion of the desolation of this temple. And rather than say, well... You know, 70 years is going to be up, it's going to be up, that'll be it. No, he starts repenting on behalf of this nation. He doesn't just dig in his heels and say, well, you know, this was other people's problem. No, this is my problem. I have problems. I need to deal with them. And he repents before God. He said, Israel has sinned and we have sinned. He takes this upon himself. He says, our kings have sinned. And he's repenting for the sin of the kings of Israel which predated his life. And then he says, we got exactly what we deserved. So often, we refuse to take upon ourselves the fact that we get exactly what we deserve. As we had discussed a few weeks ago, in John chapter 15, Jesus said that if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then we can ask what we want. But it also says... Abide in me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. In John chapter 15. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. In this place of abode, there is protection. There is life. When we step out of this, we get in big, big trouble. And you know what the outcome is? Turn to to Proverbs chapter 19. An amazing proverb in Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 3 says, The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. Can somebody read that in the NIV version? Proverbs 19, verse 3, loudly. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. Right? Isn't that interesting? My own folly, my own sin ruins my life. And then I complain against God and say, God, look what you've done to me. Don't you love me? My own folly ruins my life. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, Just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So that He loves us is established in John chapter 15. That's established. Then he says, now abide in my love. If you abide in my love, 
you'll keep my commandments and you'll abide in my love. And if you abide in my love, then my joy will be in you and your joy will be made full. So in this place of abode, there is protection and grace. Even though the challenges of life hit us all, no matter where we are, there is victory through all of this if we remain in this place of abode in Him. When we step outside of this, then we get hit with all sorts of stuff and our own folly destroys our life. And then we look at God. God, look what you've done to me. God is like, me? I mean, look at what poor God has to put up with. All these people blaming Him for destroying their lives. When the destruction of the life was purely of our own folly, of our own disobedience, Jesus said, keep my commandments and you will abide in my love. This is why these diviners had enough perception to say, look, you know, you still want to fight against this God of Israel? You're going to lose. They knew Israeli history. They knew Hebrew history. 300 years earlier, this had happened with Pharaoh. Here these Gentile Philistines knew what had happened, so you see how strong the oral tradition was. They knew what happened 300 years earlier to the the Egyptians. They said, don't mess around with this God. You're going to lose. And in the end, Pharaoh had to let him go. He lost. You should never have kept this ark here seven months and had your people ravaged. Send it back. This is a lesson for us. How long will we persist in doing our own way? When God says, you know, you could be in this place of abode. And then we get all upset with God that our lives get messed up. And let let me bring it back to reality here. You know, what are some of the things that cause us to really trash our lives? And so, so I'll, I'll, I'll pick up on, on what, what trashes young people's lives. What trashes young people's lives is, is often you marry, young people will marry the wrong person. And so what happens is a young girl, in her, she's 26, 27 years old, and she's worrying that, oh, I'm getting older, I don't have a man, and... And so she will compromise herself and marry an unbeliever. Well, you know, he's still a nice guy. He is a nice guy, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know, he's a nice guy. He's a great guy, but he's an unbeliever. The Bible has specific instruction about this. And then what happens, the marriage takes place, and then this guy doesn't care about going to church at all. And then these women just absolutely groan. I have seen it many, many times. Or young people will compromise themselves and think, well, you know, we're going to be getting married anyway, so what's wrong with just sleeping together now? Because it's in route to marriage anyway. No, because when you lower moral standards before marriage, those same lowered standards carry with you into marriage. And so there are ways you deal with this. You deal with this like Daniel dealt with it. You repent. You repent. And you say, God, the iniquity is mine. Forgive me. Forgive me, O Lord. Because these things have an effect upon our lives. Young people say, well, I'm really busy. I will start really having a dedicated quiet time over the summer. Not now, during the semester. Just too busy. And then the summer comes, and the summer is just 
so disorganized and so undisciplined that there's no discipline to have time with the Lord. And it's, well, when I graduate, then I'll really buckle in and start doing this. And then I'll, I'll really, you know, become a, a, a member of a church. You know, right now I'm just a transient. You know, I just pass through. And then I'll, I'll get really devoted and become a member of a church and, and tie in and, and realize what it is to come under authority and, and, and to serve in the body of Christ. Then I'll do it. No, but the Bible says that Moses was faithful in all of God's household. You know, there are times in our lives when we, we just lock in and we say, no, I am here at this point and I'm going to learn how to serve. I'm going to learn what the body of Christ is. I'm going to learn what the Christian community is. And the way you deal with this sort of disobedience, rather than to just neglect it and say, oh, well, I'll be all right, and then realize that I've trashed so many years now and blame God for it, you, we, we're supposed to do what Daniel did. Take this upon ourselves and say, God, it is me. It is me. I don't want to fight you on this anymore. These things begin to fight against God and fight against His way. Jesus said, keep my commandments and you will abide in me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. The commandments are here. There are things that He calls us to do. You're quite old enough to be doing this. Quite old enough. You're not little kids anymore. And there are things that He has called us to do. Don't let these things start causing us to fight against God because there will come a day where you will look up at God and say, God, why have you allowed this in my life? And then God will remind you of this day that when you step out of His commandments and the structure of His commandments, you mess up your life. This is clear. And this is what their diviners were trying to keep them from. And finally, when they let this God go, let this ark go and just send it right back, their lives got restored. They were all better after that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the word of truth. God, you are so good. Thank you, my Father. Lord, I thank You for these young people and I pray, Lord, that they would not dig in their heels to rebel against You or Your ways. Father, I thank You for the example of Daniel, the way he would pray and take upon himself these things. Father, let us not fight against You or Your ways, but yield to You and realize that You have this so that Your joy would be in us and our joy would be made full. Father, I pray for these young people that your joy would be in them. And Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.